speech comes a lot from the mother or the, or the father, the, the primary caretaker. And so if they're going with you to the supermarket or they're hearing you speak on the telephone or they're going, you know, seeing exchanges, you go to the post office, you ask for the stamps, you exchange money, you have, you know, you thank the person for the, or on the telephone as well. So making interlocutors, being having two interlocutors on a, in a conversation or in a transaction is very important because children are now not necessarily seeing that whole transaction and not even hearing the interaction, right? A lot of my work sometimes gets done via text message or via email. And so they may not have the full, uh, they certainly don't have the full exposure to speech, to language, to the kind of just the, the amount of language that they're exposed to, verbal language. And that makes a huge impact. Maria Dantos was born to a gregarious Greek immigrant father and a Mayflower compact mother. She grew up in her family-run haunted hotel in Vermont with safety and freedom to play and explore her imagination. Immersed in abundant love, she developed a worldview of social justice and the importance of removing the inequity in education. Maria is an educator to her core, with 15 years of teaching, administration and educational reform experience. She's worked with people of diverse backgrounds to advocate for justice in education as a means of upward social mobility for minority, female and otherwise less advantaged people. Her work reflects the importance of lifelong education and encouraging curiosity. She founded and led multiple daycare, pre-kindergarten, education programmes and schools of up to 100 students. Driven by her conviction that every child deserves to have access to quality education, led her to launch her non-profit, Philox, to provide humanitarian relief and education to underserved at-risk children in humanitarian areas of concern. Maria is also seeking to collaborate with educators, healthcare workers, community organisers and artists to provide solutions for at-risk children in this time of crisis. She's applied her organisational management and creative skills to work as a producer on several live events, short films, documentaries and one feature-length film. She's also collaborated with members of Yo-Yo Ma's Silk Road Ensemble, the Lincoln Centre, and with Bank Street College at Columbia University here in New York. In part two, we cover her work in educational development and her perspectives on the future impact that COVID-19 is going to have on education and child development. I hope you enjoy the caring, compassion and commitment of Maria Dantos. When you set, set it up, you described it as its roots were in anthropology, community organisation and education to develop a, a solid, unique approach to early childhood education. And that, that all sounds common sense uh, approach to education and looking at early childhood education in a holistic manner. What had caused this, the systematic failures of the education system not to embrace such an approach? And why in the early part of the, the century was an education system sort of lumbering through a probably a system that was developed a century prior. Certainly. Well, and definitely for early childhood education, because I think that in reality, it's has not been given up until perhaps recently, uh, has not been given kind of respect overall as a, as an academic subject or as a, but for instance, there's no unified curriculum um, for early childhood education in the U S. So I looked to um, the UK has kind of a formal 
professional standards and skill set by milestones, you know, all connected to where a child could be guided in curriculum. In the U.S., it doesn't exist. So it's kind of perhaps perceived as not an essential or not a not an academic or not a not to be valued. But it is the most it is the most influential and, and the time when children learn the most, those first three years. Absolutely. And therefore the ability to influence and impact on the child's potential future life lies in those first thirty six months, presumably. Very much so. Yes, their their place in the world, realizing their their sense of self, their, you know, role models, their sense of morality comes in. Um, so that, that's all being built at that time. And so, yes, to just dis- discard it as kind of just a time when they're eating sand or whatever is would be naive, exactly. And so my thought was to elevate what people had for a long time kind of disregarded as just kind of babysitting or something like that to pushing the, you know, pushing the envelope as to where the educators could go and what what the curriculum could look like. And so we called them faculty and we had parent-teacher organizations and uh, celebrations of different kinds and different lots of field trips. They would go um, to the museums and to the, you know, the Intrepid and to the botanical gardens and to use the city as a, um, as a campus and elevate how people spoke about it and perceived the whole experience in the community and respect for the teachers and respect for the work that they do and respect for the children. And it it was a, a beautiful case model, really. Um, and I think a lot of people have probably seen it, the famous Ken Robinson TED Talk, where he criticizes a schooling system for educating creative creativity out of us. It sounds like the approach you're taking is all about instilling curiosity and, and encouraging the creativity to come out of the children at such an early age. What is your sort of view and hope for the future of education, particularly in this country, in the US? Well, I think that this, uh, this particular time is going to be another tipping point for for education and for what it means to be educated and being able to think critically is of great importance uh, rather than kind of teaching to the test or being able to to do well on standardized tests or to be able to follow a very regimented curriculum instead of being able to think so for for instance right now what what Jim and I are working on is you know speaking with different scientists and different um, engineers and different doctors and epidemiologists, and everybody has to think outside of the box. So one way or another, they were not somehow are able to make the leap to, to critical thinking and thinking about, well, what if this, what if this model, but just, you know, shifted just this much could do this? Or what if we took something that this country's doing and tailor it to our system to, to be able to, to fit in or to modify. So that I think that as we approach a new uh, awakening, a new, a new era, that education will change a great deal and what's valued as knowledge will shift to what's, what's relevant and what will be actually useful in, in survival skills. Because Uval no Harari talks about the four, the importance of critical thinking, communication, collaboration, and creativity as preparing children for the next century. 
I mean, I think everyone would nod in agreement with that, but we have systems in place and curriculums that aren't really preparing and they're holding back teachers and we're still doing standardized testing. How do you think, as we're sitting here in the in probably the approaching the apex of the COVID-19 crisis, he's certainly here in New York State, the fact that the disruption to the education system has been so dramatic. How do you, th- and, it, and it may persist for two years, the disruption. How do you think that is going to impact this this tipping point that you're talking about, this, this change in direction? Can it be a positive? I believe so. I believe, I mean, it's, it will be interesting. It will be difficult to do on a, on a large scale. And obviously New York City public school system is a great case model, you know, because it's on such a huge level. And because they've also had to address, you know, my son went from going every day. He, he attends a second grade at a New York City public school and they had to shift on a dime and onto online education classes. They're doing sessions like this with the class. They're doing show and tell. They're doing... And I bet mummy's over his shoulder watching going, hey, none of that. <laughs> Behave. No, no, no. no I have uh, so much respect for the teachers being able to incorporate, just learn so quickly and be able to also emotionally and psychologically comfort the children and and maintain some semblance of normalcy for for them to be able to you know in such an uncertain time and such a you know confusing and you know quite a loss to not be able to now they're they're not able to see other children i think that sustainability will probably become a big part of education and being able to not being so reliant on the status quo and and being able to think outside of of what we've been taught as as being important for for knowledge and for being an educated person. So I mean I've been very impressed as a parent with the with the New York City public schools. Obviously as a as a teacher 20 years ago, it was uh there were many things that could have uh, been helped. But the teachers have been fantastic. I do think that the the shift that there will be a shift towards sustainability. I think of of thinking bigger picture and thinking critically because also what we had been talking about with AI is to, you know, how the difference between being replaced by AI is critical thinking, is being able to create art or literature or thinking something that's not not along the lines of uh, what would do for a, a standardized test. So it's been the, the, the shifting. Are you seeing any changes in the patterns of thinking, behaviour in children generally? Not individually, just generally seeing anything emerging that's showing that maybe the... Because everyone criticises technology. And I, I, Jim and Jim, when we interviewed him... Uh, we we st- talked about the negative impact on technology on children's development. He actually made argument for the positive benefits of technology in children's early development. What have you you've seen of anything that you could cite as being behavioural changes or neural? I don't know how you would describe it, but just changes in the children's ability to assimilate to to apply critical thinking. And the way the way they think exactly what mm-hmm. you were saying about about the neural connectivity, yeah, absolutely changing. And I see it 
my two children are six years apart. So I, I can see a difference perhaps, you know, in that, in that way, but also of course on a, on a larger scale is that when, so when Teo was the, my eight-year-old was young, we had the cell phones and all of these things, but he saw me interact. It's, it's a big thing to, you know, speech comes a lot from the mother or the, or the father, the, the primary caretaker. And so if they're going with you to the supermarket or they're hearing you speak on the telephone or they're going, you know, seeing exchanges, you go to the post office, you ask for the stamps, you exchange money, you have, you know, you thank the person for the, or on the telephone as well. So making interlocutors, being, having two interlocutors on it in a conversation or in a transaction is very important because children are now not necessarily seeing that whole transaction and not even hearing the interaction, right? A lot of my work sometimes gets done by a text message or via email. And so they may not have the full, uh, they certainly don't have the full exposure to speech, to language, to the kind of just the, the amount of language that they're exposed to, verbal language. And that makes a huge impact. So we're seeing a lot of- A negative impact. Delayed speech. Yeah. Delayed speech and uh, perhaps stilted speech and and uh, interpersonal exchanges or understanding of social mores that that used to be our kind of societal structure of how you go in, you say good morning, this is what happens, you know, and kind of and then also we've become distanced as a society where the children aren't necessarily part of that day to day. They're not going to the baker with you. Maybe you're not even going to the baker. Somebody else is, you know, they're, it's being delivered or yeah, exactly. being so disconnected from the actual pieces of the, of the makeup life. And, and we still haven't fully embraced augmented reality. So when that kicks in big time, yeah, that's, it has to be worrying. Are you seeing any conversations or policymakers discussing the impact of this? Because it's not the children's use of technology, it's the children's are being, not being exposed to our natural human behavior for speech, as you say, for speech development or even understanding uh, human c- connectivity. Correct. Yeah. I guess physical development and there's, no, I mean, that all makes a huge impact is, uh, is, on children observing the world and observing how they learn how to, you know, cook, how how meals come to the table or how to, just by watching, you know, that's why children love to do role play. They love to pretend that they're stirring something or they love to pretend a, a mailbox or the play. And so when they're put just in front of a kind of a an iPad or a television, it's not the same. It's certainly not the same in terms of, and in terms of the emotional connection that they're getting or the, or the psychological affirmation or, or part in the world. Like we were talking about realizing that they are part of a greater, a community and, and the interaction between people is very important when they're isolated behind a screen. So what can we do as a society to address this? One that uh, certainly there are times when, you know, when screens can be appropriate or when it's, you know, but I think that curating, first of all, uh, creating quality content for children is so important. I mean, it's it's devolved very much since kind of our days of 
Well, Sesame Street is now on HBO, which that's a whole other ball of yarn. But this type of quality programming, Mr. Rogers, there it exists. There are some quality um, children's programs, but not as many and not or not not as quality and more that are not not as accessible. Yes, that are not really in the best interest of the children or not really giving them something for their in exchange for their time and their energy. But there are organizations like Common Sense Media that guide parents with good resources. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Uh, if you haven't seen them, check them out. I put them in our our newsletter this week. They they have some great recommendations as to safe and... Because it's people like Tristan Harris at the Centre for Humane Technology are all are, are setting new standards for the way that apps should be developed, not just for children, but for adults as well that are less damaging to our uh, psychological makeup and our attention. But anyway, we're going off a tangent. I want to talk about your your collaborations. You've collaborated with Columbia and their educational institution. You're also collaborating with uh, Yo-Yo Ma's Silk Road Ensemble. Could you maybe just describe the work you're doing there? Yeah, so with Bank Street, uh, so Bank Street at Columbia, we've uh, partnered with the Emotional Response Program, actually, which is, this was before the the whole change of of children's lives with the coronavirus situation, but we, it was uh, based on emotionally responsive practice for curriculum for children, usually displaced children, perhaps in in homeless shelters or in foster care, or, or my particular interest was refugee children or unaccompanied minors fleeing from, from war or dangerous situations. So we're still, we had just started partnering with them. And so we're trying to figure out how to promote this practice, which I think is going to be extremely important where every childhood has come to a pause in some way and come to a, you know, a fork in the road. And no child is unaffected emotionally by this shift of, um, in their family dynamic, in their home dynamic and their, their learning experience. So I think it can be really interesting. So we're trying to, like everyone, shift to kind of an online platform where that can be helpful to, to families and to educators. And with the, so it's a pedagogy that that is very is specifically tailored for the emotional well-being of children and and providing a safe uh, learning environment, etc. And it it ties in with another project that we were doing with one of the so Yo-Yo Ma has a the Silk Road Ensemble and they are it's all uh, musicians of different ethnicities, different nationalities, and there was one visual artist and. Only one, and so that is that person contacted me to collaborate because he's a Syrian American. Uh, he lives in New York now for many years, but he knew that I had been doing work with the refugee children in in Greece, and so he uh, reached out that we could do a an art collaboration production to somehow for a charitable to raise awareness to do a a visual production with the children of the refugee at the refugee camps and perhaps with the children, you know, just the the children in Athens. And where is that at the moment, given this, everything's been shut down? 
we are, we're working everything, but that's the great thing about creative people is that, you know, it's, it's only uh, something to um, get past, to get around and you have to work out, work something creatively to, um, to circumvent. Uh, so yes, in many ways, he, he does printmaking, large scale installations, and then also is on stage many times with the musical performers, but drawing along with to the music. And so maybe in the freezes or, or behind in the stage. So we had been recently, I introduced him to the cultural center at Dartmouth here, and he came down and visited the, the studio in Brooklyn. And we were talking about bringing one of the performances that he does with a, with a fellow uh, Silk Road Ensemble member and fellow Syrian, um, but he's a clarinetist. And they do a piece called Home Within, I believe it's called. And they're all reminiscent of places of memory, places which don't exist anymore, which I think will be symbolic going forward anyway, you know, and, and maybe for, for all of us. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. It's very interesting. And so now I think that we'll be able to do something online virtually. We were going to do it, obviously, at the different places and in Athens this summer. That may not be a, a possibility, but uh, certainly the impact of, of that will be felt. We'll, we'll, we'll do something. We will definitely do something. Yeah. I mean, that even strikes a chord with when thinking back to your Navajo Nation experiences as they become displaced as well. That's really interesting. Just being conscious of time. Before we move on to quick fire questions, I want to ask you about your NGO, Philox. Could you just explain what you're doing there? So that was developed. We just founded for displaced children for that specific project around the refugee crisis in, because I was spending a lot of time in Greece at the time and then working with unaccompanied minors, which and that in a hard situation. And now it's it's kind of uh, morphed because perhaps we can't obviously do this thing in Greece. We can't do large scale art performances. That was what it was uh, a culmination of artists and and educators. But now it's been very interesting because with this shift, education and and child well being has been uh, at the forefront. There's been a huge uptick, unfortunately, in, in domestic violence and in child abuse. Now that children are, it's terrible because people are in an extremely stressful situations, perhaps losing work, perhaps you know unsafe environments uh, where perhaps they're not, they don't have resources, which is why it took so long for the New York schools to close because a lot of children rely on yeah, school meals for meals, for meals, for protection, for, for everything so much. And so the importance of education has really come up and been highlighted as, as not just school, right? It's a, it's a community. It's for adult education, for the parents, for the, um, the community. It's a, a place for, you know, where you get your health information. So about as this outbreak was happening, was a resource, you know, a community center on so many different levels. So people have been reaching out to me to, to work with children in marginalized situations uh, or unsafe situations at home. And so we're trying to develop a system, you know, a, a way where we can have emergency child care or schooling for these children, perhaps even overnight, perhaps even, you know, 24-hour care and, um, and education. During the lockdown? 
it's, I mean, if it's looking like it's not going to get back to normal for many months there, you know, children have already died from abuse. There was one in, in Texas that was documented and it's an extremely dangerous situation for uh, we don't know what extent um, of the population, but we know that it exists and it, it needs to be um, addressed. So what, I mean, can you give an example of how, what intervention could could take place to address, one, for a child to alert someone the, the, the abuse and then to be able to create an intervention that addresses it? Yes, that's uh, because usually the te- teachers are all mandated reporters. So mm-hmm. yeah child couldn't go in with, you know, marks on them or something without it being reported and, and investigated. Now, of course, yes, that's not happening. And uh, who knows? But generally, we'll be working with, with domestic violence situations. Um, so if, if perhaps a, a partner is, is being abused and, and needs to get their children somewhere safe or can, uh, no, I mean, that's, that's why I'm a child advocate. They can't speak for themselves. They can't pick up the phone and say uh, they're in trouble or they're being hurt. And so we all have to advocate for them. A lot of the schools are checking in, which is a beautiful thing. They're they're making at least weekly check-ins via remote with each child in the public school system. And so, and the, the social work sector is also doing something similar. And for Department of Health and all of this. So that's for New York. The difficulty in setting something up is that we, because of the virus, we're not able to, I mean, (laughs) I would just uh, take over a, you know, a school that's closed and just start it up again or something like that. But we have to, that's what we're working with Jim about is being able to ascertain if we've had the virus and, uh, and recovered, then we can be accepting, you know, accepting children who are negative, I guess, at that point. But it will it will take some of the medical community cooperation and that and, and availability of testing because otherwise, of course, it's a problem for a potential outbreak. Yeah, it's crazy. It's the unseen side of this crisis. It's terrible, yes. And, and still probably underreported, which is tragic. Bettina, were you going to say something? I was just saying something because we were having this conversation. I'm in the house and with the two kids with us. I mean, they are 11 and 8, but we're just having this conversation last night about all these the children that actually have special needs, you know, like uh, children with autism or, or stronger physical, you know, uh, special needs that they, like, I just wonder how the families deal with that. That must be... There's so many layers of the society that sometimes you just forget because, of course, you cannot mention all of them. But I was just, yeah, just last night I was thinking, like, I have a friend who has a child who's special need. He's very strong, has very strong autism, goes to a very good school that's very helpful for him. Um, and it's been a really incredible uh, growth for him as, a, as an autistic child. But he can go there. And this is just one small example of many, many, many. That's a good point, Bettina, because I went last, uh, yeah, it was late last year. I went to an NGO on the Upper East Side that that takes autistic children up to the age of 24. And I have no idea. And it's amazing with the work that they're doing. And those children are going to be at home with their parents. And that is, that's incredible because those children do best in most cases, when they're in a in a schooling environment with trained professionals and other children, and when they're home very often, that's when they do the worst. So imagine 
what the child goes through, but also the, the families, the, the parents that are looking after them. Sometimes it might be a single household. I mean, I can just not conceive that. You know, it's far from from what the the children benefit from uh, the routine and kind of consistency, and so their whole lives have been for yes for neurotypical children. It's very confusing, and for children who have special needs, it's it's extremely stressful. Also for the parents who are not necessarily, they're not trained professionals in the different, in the OT, you know, occupational therapy and, and physical therapy and speech therapy. And there are a lot of different components that go into the infrastructure supporting special needs children. It's really, it's hard. Not everybody is, is qualified or is, you know, has any idea of how to. Equipped, yeah. They're not personally equipped of dealing with this. Right. It's hard. Perhaps they're trying to work from home themselves or have just, you know, lost their job or caretaking for somebody. People are unwell. There are so many different components that, yeah, it all has to be taken into consideration. And, and there is a way. Help people, help people through that. What do you think the psychological effect is going to be on children once they get back into a traditional school environment? I don't think it will go back. I think that something will be permanently shifted. I think that there will be, up here, we're talking a lot about outdoor schooling so that perhaps we can put together something for, which people do up here a lot, you know, kind of not necessarily the public schools, but, uh, you know, working in nature and in the forest, um, using that as kind of a, a science laboratory or learning environment. I mean, it will be uh, from the projections that we're talking about with, with Jim and from different, you know, different resources. Um, I think that a big part of the, the social system will be different by the time we're on the other side of this. I'm hopeful that education and uh, will be seen as the lifeline that it, that it is mm-hmm. been underfunded, you know, regularly and, and kind of disregarded as as not a, a priority on so many levels and realizing that it's, it's the hub around which we're all able to do or function, right? Um, that you can't be a teacher and do your job. It's, that's a, a full undertaking on its own. And so perhaps the, the education, the um, lessons will be more skill-based and oriented towards actual practical skills of fixing things or cooking something or creating from resources from without having so many resources, creating something from, you know, recyclables or, or kind of having alternative uh, outcomes. Mm. Well, that's going to be, that's going to be fascinating to track. I've got to get to the quick fire questions. So what principles do you stand by? Justice and integrity. Okay. What hard choices for you to make that might have been tough at the time, but turned out to be the right decision further down the line? Ultimately, the having Upper Valley be acquired, that was a bittersweet and it was hard to, uh, and not something that I had necessarily gone into it thinking was going to happen, but ultimately it was for the best, yeah. Okay. Where do you go to discover new ideas? Vermont and <laughs> hikes, yeah. Okay. New York too. I like people watching and just... There's not many people here right now, so trust me, you wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> it's a ghost town. Yeah. Which is good. What's the one problem worth solving? Right now, the certainly the pandemic, but I think it, it, it goes further than that. And it's distribution, distribution of, of ideas, of, of resources. And so solving that conundrum, because it seems to be the, the hiccup for a lot, of, a lot of things being done. 
Okay. Um, if you could return to one night or one day in history, where, when, uh, and to see who or what? Um, that was the, that was the tricky one. Um, perhaps the, the end of World War II. Yeah, I think uh, the end of this uh, crisis will feel like that a bit. <laughs> don't know whether people will be sort of hugging in the streets in Times Square. I'm Italian, so many of my fellow Italians, they, uh, the elderly especially, they all say that the only moment in their lives, I mean, I'm speaking to people that are 85, 90 years old, they say the only times in their lives they felt similar to this was after 1945. So there you go. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What's one question that no one asks you that, you that you wish they would? Who's my favorite Beatle? Huh? <laughs> oh, we have to we have to leave that one hanging because we we asked uh, a guest recently uh, to tell us, and they went, "We can't tell you that." He asked us, "What's the question we would never get asked?" So we'll have to wait for someone to ask you that one. I suspect it's George. <laughs> you you may be right. Okay. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? My my son, my eldest son. I guess just becoming a mother and. And having to having someone watch you at all times and uh, be taking notes. Okay, and I suppose the youngest one will be doing it pretty soon. The impossible question: What would your advice be to someone that's uh, about to graduate or, or going to study with a dream and a goal, a grand ambition that's been told? Uh, don't even think about it. That's impossible. Nothing's impossible. Nothing's impossible. And uh, go for it. Okay. Last few questions. What's your go-to karaoke song? <laughs> when? <laughs> if that's a great question. Um, it's a duet, um, so I have to, but I have to uh, have the right, the right uh, partner. But it, "Endless Love" with Diana Ross and Lionel Richie. Oh my God, <laughs> that is <unbelievable. laughs> the best answer we've ever had. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me of a beautiful song and a beautiful duet that made me cry when I was a teenager. Uh, I'm sure <laughs> you'll amazing. be amazing. I'm sure sure you'll be digging out the Xbox karaoke um, game later. That's the romantic in me. Yeah, it's a great time. Yeah, great choice, Maria. Great choice. Bravo. Okay. Um, even more timely right now. What's your current favorite or best recent Netflix, Amazon, or Apple or Disney series? Yeah, I just watched uh, Unorthodox. Oh yeah, we saw that. Yeah, set here in Williamsburg. Yeah, enjoyed that. I've been enjoying The Crown. Those uh-huh. are the two that, but I don't usually watch so much. Yeah. Okay, what book would you want us to offer listeners that come up with the best uh, comments in the comments section? The book that came to mind was uh, The Tao. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. That's fair. And. The final question, who should we interview next? So I had two ideas for, but one is the member of the Silk Road Ensemble that I've been working with. Uh, his name's Kavor Morad, and uh, he's an interesting story. And then the other person that I, I was thinking was a restaurateur from Australia, but had just come to New York and, and started a new restaurant. And it might be interesting down in Soho. And just it's obviously this was a, a hard hit. And so now it's closed, but it was, it, he's got an interesting background too. So what's his name? Oh, uh, Robert Marchetti. So he's a, he's a celebrity uh, chef in Australia, but had not been to the U.S. Uh, what was the name of the restaurant? Oh, um, well, the bar was Pepe's Cellar and then uh, Gran Tivoli. It's a great place. And is, that, is that just down from uh, Lafayette on 
In like kind of little Italy, no Lita, yeah. I've been there. Do you know? Do you know the last the last night before the lockdown? We were in there for a. Fr- we were in that bar. That as soon as you said it, it's brilliant. The wine selection's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, well, I'll definitely make the. Oh, in that case, it's that's totally serendipitous. It's <laughs> got to be that one. It's got to be Robert, but also the other guy sounds good. Really interesting as well. Okay, just to wrap up and thank you for your time uh, and your thoughtful answers, and acknowledge you just for the amazing work you've been doing in bringing social justice and equity to education and creating opportunities for those in need and raising awareness of the. Uh, the lack of equity in education and the and the plight of those underserved children, and you know we're we're here to connect you with anyone we can that can help you move your initiative your NGO forward. And uh, if you need help with the website, give us a shout. <laughs> Wonderful, likewise. Thank and you. and really enjoyed talking to you. So stay safe, stay home, and all that. Okay, and we'll sp- we'll speak soon, Maria. Okay. Thank you. All right. Okay. Bye, bye, Maria. Bye. bye. Thank you. Bye. bye. You take care. Bye. 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 If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.